Um, would you please stand with me? We're going to read some scripture together. that will be on the screen. Please rise for the reading of scripture. This is from Luke 8. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, His disciples asked him what this parable meant. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The word of the Lord. Nailed it. Grab a seat, guys. We are in a series called Seek First. And last week, Sam explored what Jesus meant when he called his disciples to seek first the kingdom of heaven. Today, we'll take a look a step further and explore what it means not only to seek first the kingdom of heaven, but seek first the king of the kingdom of heaven. And we're also on the brink of 21 days of prayer and fasting, which kicks off next Sunday, as you've heard. And we're seeking in particular God's presence and God's provision. So God's presence in our individual lives, in our church, but also in Hawke's Bay, God's provision, particularly for a building, for us to use for a variety of ministry purposes and prayer and for his glory. So, spoiler alert, I'm here to talk about how seeking first the king is at work through prayer today. Both personal prayer, but also corporate prayer. And those are the two movements today, personal prayer and corporate prayer. So wherever you are in your prayer journey today, I pray that you leave here today with a conviction to keep going deeper, both in your personal prayer and your corporate prayer. Now, Charlotte spoke a few weeks ago about the Learner's Guide to Prayer, and I'll just continue that journey and invite you to imagine what happens when we seek first the King together. What happens when we actually seek His presence individually and corporately? So today I'm connecting uh, the seed from that parable uh, to the invitation to prayer. Each of us has an opportunity to respond to that call to prayer today, this week, for the next 21 days, uh, and beyond. Now, in Jesus' parable, uh, it could be that he was merely giving a statement of fact, like each person responds differently, and that's that. But I don't think that's what he meant. I think when he spoke that parable, it was an invitation to choose what type of soil you will cultivate in your heart. So, Lord Jesus, give us all hearts made of good, soft, receptive soil this day, so that prayer may produce an abundant harvest in us, individually, corporately, and may it be, Lord. Now, had I been asked to give this prayer talk about three years ago, uh, the sermon would have been very short. I didn't really have any regular prayer routines at that time. And 21 days of prayer would have gotten me about as excited as a dinner of Brussels sprouts followed by hanging up the laundry. (laughs) Supposedly quite good for you, but what a drag. Uh, Even worse, I would have supposed to be getting passionate uh, about this sort of thing, and so now I would feel dread and guilt at the same time. But my perspectives have changed, um, among other things, by the story of a man and his church. And with a name like this, you know it's going to be good. 
Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. One hands up, who's heard of this guy? Okay, that's good. You're going to hear about him today. And his church of Moravians. Who knows where Moravia used to be? Excellent. Okay, you're going to learn all about it. Now, these guys knocked my socks off, uh, but I'm going to save the best for last. So, first, what is prayer? Now, the answer to that immediately jumps to mind for me is that it's asking for stuff. And this is because for most of my life, I have spent the majority of my prayers asking God to do things for me, usually around comfort, control, ease of life, security, wealth for me and my family. And to be honest, I've usually been praying quite selfish prayers. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not a bad place to start, but there's surely more to prayer than that. So as we enter this season of 21 days of prayer and fasting, um, the thought of praying for more than 10 minutes can seem incomprehensible. I know it would have to me. And if you're like me, you run out of things to ask for, and then prayer gets boring and uncomfortable. And of all the things I do ask for, sometimes I feel like I'm batting maybe 5% on a good week. You know, I get discouraged, and I start to think, well, what's the point of all this then? Um, but that whole way of thinking about prayer is a transactional view of prayer. I ask God for things, he responds. Um, yet some people talk about praying for hours. And not like a marathon runner speaks of running a long, difficult, uncomfortable, tiresome, and burdensome task. These people, they have a spark in their eye. Um, listen to David speak about a prayer in Psalm 27. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. Yes, David, what is it? Surely something fabulous like wealth or wisdom or prosperity or acclaim or uh, prestige or a great name. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To, to, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Um, do you know the last line of Psalm 23? It's a famous psalm. It reads, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's not a reference to heaven, but to Israel's temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. In some ways, the equivalent to a church building. So you could say that David concludes his psalm, um, with the hope of living in a never-ending prayer meeting. Anybody? Come on, there's some of you out there. So this morning, I want to cast a vision for prayer that shifts us further and further from that transactional, I ask God, he gives to me, I get frustrated because he doesn't do what I want, to relational prayer. And put a few more sparks in a few more eyes and make sense of this heart we see in David. That's what we're doing today. Now, a quick poke around the old Google reveals a few themes for prayer. I saw talking to God, listening to God, relationship with God. Now, more poetically, I'm going to suggest that prayer is turning our attention towards the presence of God. I made that up. Could be theologically off, but that's what we're going with today. Um, God is always present, of course, but praying involves us becoming aware of that presence. We turn our attention away from screens and work and distractions, and we turn our attention towards God. Uh, more concisely, I'd suggest prayer is seeking first the king. Now, Pete Gregg in the 24-7 prayer course likens this to marriage. Just imagine you and your, your wife, you and your husband, um, and you only ask them for things. What's for dinner? Can you take in the laundry? Where are my keys? If that's it, you have a pretty rubbish marriage, guys. You might say, oh, but I have a marriage certificate. Isn't that enough? Okay, I think you get the point. That kind of transaction does not foster deep relationship. We're going further. Um, but to be fair, we struggle to perceive our Lord. He is usually invisible after all. 
So one way to think about turning our attention to God is an experience of his presence. Now, being aware of God's presence takes on many forms and experiences using our physical senses. I was trying to think this through. What does it mean to turn our attention to God? Think about your mind. God interacts with us cognitively in our minds. We can choose to a certain degree what to direct our attention to, and we can direct our attention to God. We can't see him, but we can think about his name, meditate on his attributes, recite his promises, think about things he's done, and God also speaks to us, rarely through sound waves in our ears, but often directly into our minds, into our thoughts, our minds. God's presence interacts with our emotions. We feel things as a result of his presence. Some of you may have been feeling things today as we sing these songs. He's here right now, next to each of you. You might feel joy, wonder, awe, conviction, comfort, peace, or just simply feeling emotionally overwhelmed. God interacts with our imagination. In our inner eye, God forms images and reveals himself that way. God also interacts with our bodies. This is undervalued, I think. He causes sensations, tingling, warmth, energy, movement, even healing. And that can start to sound a bit weird, you know, tingling and warmth. You might just need to go to the toilet. But just talk to people who are further down the track into prayer. God interacts with our bodies too. And then beyond. Um, However, it's true that there is a more real behind the physical world, behind what we can normally perceive. God's domain is often invisible and imperceptible to us, but through Jesus, heaven is breaking into earth, and we can experience an overlap of heaven and earth. So consider these stories as examples. Um, Consider Jacob's experience of a stairway to heaven full of angels on the move. Consider God's presence in a cloud, lightning, and smoke on the mountain with Moses. Consider the cloud and the smoke that filled the tabernacle at its dedication. And Solomon's temple at its dedication, the glory of the Lord so thick they couldn't even come in. Consider Daniel's vision, Ezekiel's vision, and John's vision where Jesus was glowing and fiery. Or the transfiguration on the mountain where he actually glowed in front of his disciples. Or tongues of fire resting on people's heads. These are key moments throughout the story of scriptures where heaven and earth overlap. And in prayer, we have the opportunity to experience those kind of moments ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps not as dramatic, glowing, flaming smoke, at least not every day. Uh, But Jesus invites us into his throne room, into the king. He says so. So all that to say, by prayer, we don't simply mean transaction with God. Pete Gregg used the image of ramming our shopping cart into the shins of God with our prayers. Now, you can do that. He will let you, and he's full of grace, but it limits our experience of God. No, living prayer is relational, and prayer is turning our attention towards God's presence, seeking awareness of his dwelling among us through Jesus and his spirit. Now, that potentially sounds very deep and very profound, but what does that mean? So, for these 21 days and beyond, what do we pray to turn our attention to God and seek first his kingdom? Like, what do we do? Um, So I was taking a look through the prayers of Moses, David, other psalmists, Daniel, Jesus, the early church, and Paul, among others. And I noticed that their prayers in scriptures are very broad and very deep. Just a few things I noticed. These saints do ask God for things, don't get me wrong, but they do so much more. Uh, Sorry, Ramon, back up a slide here. I got a little ahead of myself. Oh, no. Sorry, back up to the heaven and earth thing. I missed a cue. Go to the, yeah, so that's the picture. Heaven and earth. We're in the purple spot there in the middle. That's the prayer spot right there. On the next slide, here we go. Um, they declare truths about God and what he's done. 
and his promises. They offer him gratitude and thanksgiving. They honestly pour out their thoughts and feelings of all sorts and varieties because life is often not going very well. They offer confessions and repentance. They surrender and submit to God. David and Jesus offer us set prayers in the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. They invite the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of praying in the Spirit and praying in tongues. They pray against evil, especially in the Psalms, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. They boldly ask for things, but not the kind of things I normally ask for. And then they remain in silence and they listen. Consider the most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, has at least five different parts to it, five different movements. There's declaring truth about God and honoring his name. Um, There's petition and intercession for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, our daily bread. There's confession and forgiveness for others, and it concludes with protection from evil. There's a breadth and a depth in there. So just imagine in your own prayer, spending two minutes on each of these. Imagine you spent two minutes declaring the truth about God, two minutes in gratitude, two minutes in silence, two minutes boldly asking for things, and on and on. Even if you're already a master prayer, adding this breadth and depth can make your prayers very much relational. So to get a little more personal, I thought I'd just share briefly my own journey with prayer on down this track. Um, I started praying in earnest in high school. And at that time, as a teenager, I thought it's really a good idea to pray for other people. So I started creating a list of prayers for family and friends. But that list quickly grew too big for a day, so I couldn't pray through it every day. So I turned that list into a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday list, a few requests on each day, and would pray through my list. But a lot of these lists were long-term prayers, and so they didn't go away. And I just kept adding more and more and more. Um, and it became very cumbersome for me. It was also very one-dimensional. I was just asking God for things over and over again, which is good, but it's, it's one-dimensional. Um, so I lost motivation, and that fell apart. In university, I was taught how to have a daily quiet time. So at that time, uh, I got taught how to take a piece of Scripture, read it prayerfully, and turn that into a prayer, which was great. I was starting to hear God speak. Um, it was different every day, and I stuck with that for quite a few years. That was really good. It took it more to a relational level for me. Um, to combat falling asleep in the morning. This was in university and I'd often stay up late. So for a season, I went for morning prayer walks to keep me awake. Trouble was, the season I chose was winter haha, in Canada. So that didn't last very long, but good idea, the prayer walk thing. Um, so that carried me through uni, and then we got married. And as a young married man in church, I was given a prayer guide at, at one season in our church, which was so great. It had five sections, declaring truth, surrendering, confessing, forgiving, requesting. Five minutes each with some guided prayers, declaring truth, things like Jesus is the Lamb of God, Jesus is the Lion of Judah, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, for like five minutes just saying things about Jesus. Five minutes to surrender to Jesus, five minutes to confess, to forgive, to request. 25 minutes. And that was the first time in my life I prayed for 25 minutes and it felt so short. I ran out of minutes in the prayer because it was so robust, deep, and relational. It had such breadth and depth. And that gave me a greater insight into prayer. But then we had kids and all the wheels fell off. And my prayer routine disappeared over time into the sands of time. Um, Now, what got me back into prayer was this devotional book, Day by Day, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, When I joined this church, we were just into the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, and it came with this devotional book. And the way it worked was it started with two minutes of silence, a short scripture, short reflection on the scripture, set prayer, two minutes of silence, seven minutes. However, it was morning and evening. Who knew you could pray twice a day, right? (laughs) That was new to me. Uh, And there was weekly accountability because we had a weekly group and you'd ask each other, how did it go? How many of these did you do? Did you fall off the wagon? And there was a weekly accountability there for 40 days. Just a quick hand up. Who has found this book useful at some point in their life? Yeah, great. Thanks. 
Um, it was so life-giving, the silence, the depth, the variety, that it was short, twice a day. It got me right back on track, and I did the whole thing again myself for 40 more days. And then I was hooked, man. I started listening to sermons on prayer, like one by Tim Mackey about the Lord's Prayer. I always thought the Lord's Prayer was just for kids. And he showed me that it's like a multi-million dollar diamond with facets, and it's limitless. And I thought it was just some cheap op shop plastic ring. And I'm looking at it now. Um, it's a daily scaffold for my prayers. It's beautiful. I also caught a vision for the power of corporate prayer. I used to hate prayer meetings. They were so boring. Um, through Zinzendorf. I'll tell you about this guy in, in a few minutes. And so then I committed to coming to the Bay Vineyard prayer meetings uh, and in the evenings and listening to other saints pray. Novices copy from the greats, right? So there's some great prayers in here. I learned a lot. I also started praying apostolic prayers from the scriptures, Paul's prayers from his letters, from Hebrews. Set prayers, collecting prayers. And the deeper I go, the more there is to find. It's like a really good friend. The more deeply you know each other, the more there is to talk about, right? That's from Craig. Stole that from you. Thank you. We are all on a prayer journey with our Lord that starts now and will carry on into eternity. So here's some things I've noticed in my own journey through prayer. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes you. It changes your thought patterns, your attitudes, your desires, your view of God, yourself, and the world. Prayer is so much more interesting. It's easier and more natural to pray for longer periods of time. God speaks to me more often. What I ask for has changed. Using set prayers from Scripture and from other saints has given me an appetite for praying bigger, bolder, deeper requests. Not just for me, but for the community, for the world. God shows me more clearly where he wants me to take action and be the answer to my own prayers. And prayer has started spilling into other areas of my life. Um, into lunch and midday and in troublesome moments and beyond. I know God better and I experience more answers to my prayers. Not because I have more prayer points or prayer powers or prayer stars or anything like that, just because I'm more likely to pray things that God already wants to do because I'm getting to know him better. Just think of these four prayers. Out of his glorious riches, may he strengthen us with power in our inner beings through his spirit. That's a prayer he answers like every day. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know him better. He answers that prayer. Give us our daily bread. He answers that every day. Let this morning bring me word of your unfailing love. He answers that for me every day out of the scriptures. And for you too, I hope too. So my hope today is that we all see more clearly that turning our attention towards God, seeking first the king, experiencing his presence, this is a game changer. Okay. But ask yourself, um, let's, not, sorry, let's not forget the fact that Jesus did tell his followers to always pray and never give up. Just to the next slide, thanks. Um, he, always, he did say, always pray and never give up. Like in the parable of the persistent widow who came to the judge day after day begging for justice, a big part of prayer is asking God for his good gifts of all sorts. The thing is, as we get to know him better, we ask for things that he actually wants. Now, of course, he offers us to come as we are. He promises to hear our prayers, even if we're immature and outrageous in our prayers. So we can just pray as we are. But we're on a journey to genuinely pray like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Now, we usually start by asking God for things we want for our own benefit. But we can grow in prayer by asking for others and our family and our friends and our community and the region and the world. So in these 21 days, in particular, we're praying for God's presence and God's provision personally in the church, in the region. Consider this question. If 
in the context of now asking for things of God. If all your prayers over this last week were answered right now, what would change? Think for a few seconds. Would you have a few extra parking spaces, which is good? Or would the very kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven? We are being invited in these 21 days and beyond to pray big, bold prayers. So we've put together a prayer guide that Sam will explain next Sunday. It has a daily structure of daily set prayers, short prayers, and they're a helpful tool to get us started. But they include a lot of asking for big things. Now, on that note, we tend to think of spontaneous prayers as more alive and more authentic, right? and set prayers as more stale and formal. But I think that says more about the prayer than the prayer. Because I can say from experience that my prayer life took like a quantum leap forward when I encountered and embraced set prayers. They're so deep, wise, and full of truth. So again, novices need models to build on. Watch for that next week. But if that's what personal prayer looks like, breadth, depth, boldly asking, what happens when we pray? You know, what happens when we seek first the king, when we seek his presence? First of all, as I said, prayer changes us. Um, these kinds of prayers fill our hearts and minds with truth. They strengthen our love for God and our devotion for God. They increase our trust and faith. They change our priorities and desires. And that's all before God even starts answering any prayers. Just praying the prayers changes you. And you have to remember that God is a good father. He loves giving good gifts. And some prayers he gives through his spirit, like wisdom and power and endurance and revelation. Some prayers he answers through his other people, our friends and family. Some prayers he answers through you, for others. Often while praying for another, it becomes clear to me that God is definitely going to answer this prayer because he tells me to do it. Like I was praying the other day, encourage Brian sides in his suffering. And he's like, text him yourself. (laughs) So consider this quote from Brennan Manning here. In the contemplative traditions, prayer is not primarily about changing things somewhere out there. It is first and foremost about changing something in here. The most powerful thing that can happen in the place of prayer is that you yourself become the prayer. You leave the prayer room as Jesus' hands and feet on earth. This is what it means to pray continually, to seek, to see with the eyes of Jesus and to hear with his ears with every waking moment. Hmm. And just quickly consider, why does he change us like this? It's for his glory. It's for the benefit of others, which brings him glory. And it's for Our own flourishing, of course, which also brings him glory. But it's not just a project of self-improvement. It's a project of renewal for the glory of God, for the benefit of others. For a long time, I thought praying uh, was a way to get stuff from God. But we're actually praying to be formed, to be changed into the kind of person who's open to and aware of God's presence so he can do amazing things through us. So, all for others, for his glory, bringing salvation and freedom and life um, for his children, for us. So quick caveat there. It's important to remember that we need to pray as we can. Prayer is for everybody. God is ready and waiting for even the shortest and the simplest of prayers. So we have to pray as we can, not as you can't. You just start small and you take the next step. This is the whole life of prayer. Uh, to be fair, prayer is not always interesting. It's not always exciting. It's not always emotionally stimulating. Prayer, even for the greats, is often a bit boring. But that kind of fidelity to Jesus... In prayer is how we become like him over the long game and how we start to do more of what he did from Tyler Staten. Prayer is not often dynamite, but often a hammer chipping away. 
So let me transition now from personal prayer to corporate prayer. As I shift us there, consider this. I had this flash of insight as I was imagining, what is the end goal of prayer? Where does it lead us? Where do we end up if we go on this journey? Again, from Pete Gregg, he was saying in his prayer course, consider that now, if you're like him, a lot of us pray about our problems. Help me with this. This is going wrong. Lord, we need you. Help, help, help. But in the age to come, there's no problems. So surely we won't stop praying, turning our attention to God. That's what we're going to be doing the whole time. We will be doing it perfectly as we were made to do in his presence. So what will we pray about? What will we say? This got me thinking. So imagine this. In the age to come, we will eventually experience a life of prayer that looks like this. It's unceasing with a father that we know intimately. We submit to him willingly and completely. We love him fully. We trust him deeply. We'll speak vulnerably and honestly to him. We'll hear clearly. He's so beautiful. Joyfully, we'll obey him without hesitation or any reservation because we no longer have any doubt that his best interests, he has our best interests at heart. Of course he does. There'll be no more fear, no more self-doubt, no more self-consciousness. God's presence is the very light of the new Jerusalem. When Jesus returns and restores this world as the way it should be, it's so good. So we come back to this picture. We are invited into the beginnings of that experience that will happen now. Prayer can be an experience of that restoration, of that relationship with God that we look forward to in the age to come where heaven and earth overlap. Um, But prayer in all its breadth and depth is also restoration to the garden. As Sam said last week, God made us for loving relationship with him. So being aware of his presence full time, all the time, that's like the definition of paradise. The Lord's dwelling place, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, is referred to in the scriptures as heaven or as paradise. And that word paradise has its roots in the word for garden, not just any garden, right? The garden, the picture. So the risen Jesus has ascended. He sent his spirit. And now we can turn our attention to his presence and we can dwell there for a time in prayer. Um, I had a taste of this on Friday and Saturday. I went for an overnight hike up into the Kawekas and my intention was to pray, um, to attempt to constantly turn my attention to God during that hike to seek first the king. Partly as an experiment, you know, I've been preparing this talk. Is this real? Does it work? Is prayer actually like this? Now, sure, I did get distracted. Um, I had to concentrate on navigation, so my one-night prayer guide uh, didn't turn into a week-long prayer hike. But I was reasonably successful at turning my attention to God all day. This is the first time I've tried this. Now, there was no constant euphoria, emotional highs, but there was this amazing simple awareness uh, of God's presence all day. I just felt so, so satisfied. I felt like complete, whole. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. You know, he satisfies in prayer. I felt uh, this deep companionship. I was all alone in the blowing gales on top of the Kawekas, and I felt his companionship with me throughout the day. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. He is with us. He offers us this companionship. And honestly, it was a taste of heaven meeting earth. And I want more of that. So imagine again with me. Imagine that you actually have no structured prayer life whatsoever, like I did back a number of years ago. Or maybe you just remember when that was you. Or maybe you don't have to imagine at all. Maybe that's you today. Now then imagine you pray for five minutes every morning. 
listening, gratitude, speaking truth from Scripture, being honest with God, forgiveness, some silence, asking for things. And then you up it to 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, then maybe twice a day, maybe three times a day. You can see how prayer would start to creep into your consciousness throughout the day. You would start having memorized scriptures and memorized prayers and shooting from the hip prayers and short bursts of gratitude and cries for help and listening to God all throughout the day. And there could conceivably become a time where for every minute of every day, you're aware of his presence. That would literally be heaven on earth. That was what it was like then, and that's what it will be like in the age to come. It has been done. Just read Brother Lawrence's book or Frank Lobach. These guys did that with the power of the Spirit. Who wants that, guys? Come on. This is what's on offer in prayer. Tim Mackey, uh, head of Bible Project, told a story recently in a sermon at the 24-7 prayer conference. Um, it's about huckleberries, okay, which you probably have never heard of in your life because I hadn't either. It's like a wild blueberry, okay? But huckleberry sounds cooler, so just go with huckleberry. Um, he was on a hike, kind of like I was, for three days, trying to be alone and experience God's presence in the wilderness. He wanted to pray. He's like a smart Bible guy and is really big on the mind, but was trying to expand his prayer life. Went for a three-day hike. And on the first day, he's in the ranges, and uh, he's walking along, and he notices a figure in the bushes, and notices it's a girl, and she's like in the bushes, kind of rumbling around. He's like, oh boy, i got to look the other way, and I don't, has she seen me yet? Going toilet in the bushes. Anyway, she pops up, purple, all over her teeth. She's like, there's huckleberries everywhere. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he looks around, and he's been so focused on praying. Um, all along the path, either side are bushes, wild berries growing everywhere. It just happens to be the season where the bushes are bursting with these beautiful berries all along the path, the whole three days. Berries everywhere. It's like, that's prayer. God's presence is everywhere. It's on offer. Just turn our attention to it. There's huckleberries everywhere. Oh, it's so exciting. Um, I can't help but think of my own experience of driving to work these days. Uh, I listen to a curated list of worship music that really is really meaningful to me, praise songs with lyrics that really grab my heart. And um, in the last couple of years, I just often arrive at work with a tear in my eye, just full on sobbing sometimes. Um, I think, where, what, where did that come from? I didn't used to do that. And I think my car turns into like a little mini tabernacle. You know, God's presence in my car. And uh, it's just amazing. Now, of course, this takes time and persistence, just like a marriage or a friendship. But the invitation remains. This is the end goal of prayer. We start by praying as we can, not as we can't. We start small. We take the next step. And I'm not suggesting a nonstop explosive emotional experience every day with God. Um, God doesn't always press our emotional button. But if you crack the prayer guide, turn your attention to him, he may interact with your mind, your imagination, your heart. Either way, there's huckleberries. Um, look at this, this picture here. This is from the Chosen trailer who just came out the other day. Anybody watch the Chosen Season 3 trailer? Come on. There's this moment where Jesus is speaking to the apostles, all 12, and he's telling them, I've chosen you 12 to be my apostles. There's this big moment. In the trailer, Philip's like, I don't feel any different. And Jesus looks at him and just says, I don't need you to feel different to do great things. Now, Jesus didn't actually say that, but come on, he could have said that. <laughs> so keep that picture in mind. What would it look like if we were all to seek the king like that? What would it look like if we were all to seek his presence like that, in that direction? Here we go. This takes us into corporate prayer. Now, if you've been paying attention, you've heard a couple times this guy, 
Zinzendorf and his Moravians. And you're like, who is this guy? It's time, my friends. Let me cast a vision for you of what it looks like when a group of people engage in deep, broad, and committed prayer together. Okay, so the story of Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. He was born in 1700s in Germany, which is why he's got a weird name. And he was born into one of the oldest aristocracies in the country. So um, high up in the social ladder. But he had a natural heart right from a young boy to pursue Jesus. Uh, he was natural into prayer, natural into the scriptures, and naturally sought after the Lord. You know, some people are just wired this way, and he was too. He had lots of great mentors in his life. Um, he accrued friendships and pursued rule of life with his mates. He started the order of the mustard seed with a rule of life around the poor and prayer and devotion to obedience to God. Great man. His heart was to be a pastor. But as an aristocrat in 1700s, his family was like, no, you cannot do that. It's below your station. But he yearned to have a people that he could pastor. Um, then came this opportunity as these Moravians from this non-existent now country of Moravia were experiencing religious persecution. So they were fleeing the country. And uh, it came about that they came to ask him, can we live on your land? And he said, yes. And he noticed, this is it. These are my people. So people came and lived on his land, religious uh, persecution fleers. And the word spread and they invited more people. And it started to be quite a collective of people on his land. And they settled a town. He called it Herrenhut, which means under the Lord's watch. You can see the picture of it here. Small little beautiful village. Um, but because they had been re religious refugees from all over Moravia, they were a wide variety of theology. And there was a lot of conflict amongst these different people over baptism and communion and predestination and not. And you can imagine what happened. There was even a guy who came and accused Zinzendorf himself of being the Antichrist because he was a Lutheran. So it was a disaster. But yet um, Zinzendorf was like, these are going to be my people. I'm going to pastor these people. So he would visit each family three days in a row, praying with them and, and uh, imparting upon them the, the idea of unity. Like, come on, guys, we can do this. Come together. Um, he had an all-night prayer session with some leaders in the community. And the very next day, they would gather for prayer services, for church services. And on August 1727, the Holy Spirit just came upon their prayer meeting. There was intense confession to one another from all the past hurts and the disagreements. There was incredible worship. Um, they were feeling overwhelmed. They were reeling and falling on their faces, and they didn't want to go home. They stayed in the church all day, praising the Lord, confessing to each other. It was described as like the Hernhut Pentecost. And the Spirit brought great unity to these people. So following that, they spent time in devotion to meeting together and to prayer. They'd meet three times a day on normal days, all day on Sunday. In the evening, young men would announce the end of the day by singing hymns through town. Um, two weeks after this Pentecost, they, they gathered in 24-7 prayer groups. They felt convicted to move into 24-7 prayer. 24 men, 24 women. That's it. One hour each a day. And that continued from that day forward for 100 years. These guys, that village. Sorry, back up, back to the village. Um, this little village prayed 24-7. They started discipleship in small groups and were just being formed in the image of Christ. Five years after this time, they start thinking about mission. There's these two guys who hear about there's uh, an island in the Caribbean where there's slaves and they're working day and night under harsh conditions. And these guys feel Jesus telling them, go to the Caribbean island, minister to these people. To do it, they literally had to sell themselves into slavery. These were the first two Moravian missionaries. Sell themselves into slavery, into the Caribbean, and bring the word of the Lord there. As they do, uh, they start to bear fruit. They call on more Moravians. More Moravians come. And this island is revival, spreads. These slaves are coming to Christ and being freed from their slavery. And William Wilberforce at the time used that as an example to counteract slavery globally 
at the time. Because the big concern was, what if we free all these slaves? We're all going to rise up and kill us all. And on that island, these people were coming to Christ, being freed from slavery peaceably. And he looked to that as an example. And it was a big part of the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery, from this little village of Moravians. Um, another group of Moravians were off to America on a missions trip. And they met a guy you might have heard of called John Wesley. On the ship, there was 24 Moravians there, and there's a wild storm one night. The ship's going to and fro. The main sail goes to shreds. Most people are screaming and clinging to each other in terror. And the Moravians are having their three-a-day prayer meetings, singing psalms, singing hymns, just in peace and calm. And John Wesley's like, he's no slouch himself. You know, what are you guys up to? And they're like, we're not afraid to die. We're worshiping the Lord. Um, and this grabbed his heart. When he got back to England, he sought out the Moravians, and in one of their prayer meetings, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And John Wesley was instrumental in the Great Awakening, brought personal encounters with Jesus all over the UK and America, and birthed the modern evangelical movement through these guys. Then there was George Whitfield, John Wesley's buddy, who also was filled with the Holy Spirit at a meeting of Moravians, and he preached to perhaps 10 million people in the UK and America. Then there's William Carey, he saw how the Moravians were doing missions and living with people and serving people and preaching Jesus instead of just theology. And he was like, we need to do missions like the Moravians. And this guy went and spent 40 years in India and is called the father of modern missions. Again, from these guys. They changed the landscape of Western church, a town of 600 people who were committed to prayer. 100 years of 24-7 prayer. Unity, confession, discipleship. Guys, God can use... Bay Vineyard. We may be one-third the size, so maybe only one explosive revival and maybe missions to one continent, but still, guys, this is big, big deal. Just imagine with me for a moment that those Moravians had remained in conflict over theology. John Wesley, Whitfield, Carey, Wilberforce, millions of Christians around the world. Didn't happen. It didn't start with a hundred years of 24-7 prayer selling themselves into slavery and a global missions movement. It started with Zinzendorf and some Moravian leaders praying all night. That's the invitation for us, guys. Only God knows what he'll do with people who are committed to prayer. Now, that initial prayer led to great unity, which led to regular gatherings, which led to this Pentecostal movement, which led to 24-7 prayer, which led to missions for the glory of God. And that's it. That's not it. There's more. My next slide. Let's finish up with 24-7 prayer. 300 years later, uh, a Brit called Pete Gregg visited Herrenhut. He felt compelled to start his own 24-7 prayer for a few weeks at his church. It was so awesome. Other local church people started attending their 24-7 prayer meeting. It spread nationally. Churches around England started having 24-7 prayer meetings in their churches. Then it spread throughout Europe and then internationally. And weeks turned into years. There's been 24-7 ongoing from church to church to church since 1999. The Salvation Army got into it. Uh, Christians who were reluctant, nominal, or lukewarm would be invited into these prayer rooms. I'll go for 10 minutes. And they'd be falling on their face and praying for hours, turning to God and becoming their own champions of prayer and evangelism and of Jesus' power. These guys would take 24-7 prayer rooms to hard-to-reach places, dark places like the island of Ibiza, a big party town in Spain. They would set up a prayer room and they would pray, and they found themselves in inner circles, in parties, and clubs, and houses, and people were being healed, and people were coming to Jesus. It's still going on today. It's almost been a quarter century of 24-7 prayer. Guys, I share that story because from the Moravians came all that stuff and this, and now here we are. God is at work in the global church. We are not starting something from scratch, guys. We're joining a mighty torrent of prayer around the world. 
The Spirit of God is doing amazing things. And we get to be a part of it. Woo! Here's what it's like, guys. Last, we close with this. This is what it looks like. Much of our holy discontent, you might feel that in our current age, a holy discontent with the way things are in our world, is born of a life that is suffering from what Richard Foster calls the agony of prayerlessness. Our lives are designed to be an intimate relationship and friendship with God. When we don't pray, we become spiritually dehydrated. Then prayer begins. Eventually, holy discontent forms into a desire to pray that can no longer be ignored. That's what's happening here, guys. With the status quo no longer tolerated, the only way forward is to cry out to God for his intervention in the world. Prayer moves from something desirable, but rarely practiced, to something indispensable. Next slide. Contending prayer then becomes normative amongst those seeking renewal. Such prayer asks God to change our churches, our culture, and our world. It also changes us. Guys, this is what we're about to do. What some of us are already doing. So let me invite you as we wrap up today, to consider what this might look like for you in the coming weeks. It's very exciting. Next slide, Ramon, thanks. There's a table there. Consider it putting this into practice in a variety of ways. Okay, these are suggestions for you. How can you be a part of this mighty torrent of prayer that's changing the world, changing churches, changing people's lives? Consider on an entry level um, that on personal prayer, you could possibly use the prayer guide that we're going to give you next week in the morning. Consider corporately that you could attend one of the prayer meetings we're going to have. Consider in terms of fasting that you could fast from a meal a week. Some of the suggestions on a deeper level. Consider for personal prayer that you could use the prayer guide morning and evening. Consider for corporate prayer that you could attend a street prayer. Perhaps you could slot into the 36 hours of prayer we're going to conclude with. Perhaps you could fast a day a week. Consider a deep dive if you're up for this, guys. Consider for personal prayer you could pray morning, noon, and evening with the prayer guide and more. 21 days, three weeks. Consider that you could attend all the prayer meetings. You could host a street prayer and sign up for a night slot. Come on, in the middle of the night to pray. And you could fast multiple days. Can I ask you now, as we close, to ask God, if you haven't already, God, what are you calling me to? It's all good to start where you're at. Not everybody's up for the deep end. The entry level is a great place to start. What is God calling you to? Ask him now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude by drawing us back to that parable from the start and I'm going to offer you a chance to, um, to respond consider that parable that we started with today Jesus sowed these seeds and today I'm interpreting that as prayer the call to prayer the call to prayer there were those seeds along the path that were snatched up by the devil now we're not just saved for heaven but we're saved into a life in God's presence now through prayer so I say, may the Lord protect us all from the deceit of the evil one. Some of the seeds fell on rocky ground, and they, they received it with joy, but they had no root. They believed or they prayed for a time, but then they fell away. I want to suggest to you that you could pray for these 21 days, but without a routine or a structure, um, without some accountability, uh, you may pray for a time and then fall away. Consider the option of the seeds who fell among the thorns. Um, they were choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Now, distractions will come, and prayer goes against the flow of the world. So that could be you too. But the seeds on good soil 
stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, hear the call to prayer, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Lord, let us be that last group 